Simple as my mama said when I was very young She told me not to worry, son, one day you'll be someone But here I am at 21, as loaded as a stagecoach shotgun I'm sorry, mama, please don't look at me When I got to Oklahoma, I was 17 My papa taught me how to work And Lord, he was mean Working all day in that August heat And he taught me how to fish My uncle taught me how to drink Welcome back to Cowboy Shit This is episode 153 My name is Ted Stoven He is Dustin Edwards And we are um, swapping spots today, Dustin I'm on the road and you're at, you're at HQ This is weird Yeah, sitting in... Uh... Sitting in the captain's chair, keeping her warm for you, buddy. I uh, I even left some gear there so you could hook up the hook up a podcast rig if you had your own microphone. Just here, I am. There. Here <laughs> I am on here I am on Zoom with a with a, a microphone with no cord hooked up to it. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> see how, see ah. how technical I am. Oh, good man. Um. So there've been we've been quite a bit go on the last week. We just finished uh I guess the pro rodeo and CPRA seasons just finished. Uh we had what 10 Canadians make the NFR this year, which is huge. That's a big year. Uh and, there, and like four, what is it? One, two, three, four, four that were just like inside the top twenty, the top eighteen that just missed it too. So uh congrats to all the finals qualifiers. Uh tough go for Dawson Dylan Graham, just missed it. Hugh Taylor, Colby Wanchuk just missed it. Um, so it been three more first timers could have made the finals, but uh, we got a we got a couple first timers in there. We've got uh, what is Stephen Culling going for the first time? Uh, Bo oh, Cooper cool. going for the first time. Who else? What was I trying to get out here? And then everybody else has already been. Leighton yeah, Green, Ben Anderson, Dawson Hay, four Bronc riders, which is huge. Oren Larson back again. I think this is. I think that's Oren's ninth time, which I believe is the most ever. For a Canadian bareback rider, if yeah, I and, have my stats right, and he was running up to the world ones too. Like he's been darn close to winning it. Yeah, not far. They're just they're just such a gap these years. And like, what is it? Uh, the uh, sorry, Stetson Wright. The amount of money that guy's won this year is won almost a half a million dollars. A half a million dollars this year in the in the season, like in the all around standings, and that doesn't even. That doesn't even count the like extreme bulls either, oh, it's right? Insane. It's yeah. insane how much money won. Oh yeah, like so actually Jason Davidson is his agent, uh 3D bull riding up here, and he said that they already put his name on the buckle. It's already done. He's three hundred and ten thousand dollars ahead of second place. Nelson Wyatt, who I've never even heard of. I don't even know what event that guy does. Crazy. And Brushton Minton. Don't know who they are. So that's oh, the, they're not. I'll tell you who they are. They're not going to be on the buckle, obviously. <laughs> so he's leading the Bronco riding world standings by four thousand over Sage Newman. Um, Zeke Thurston's about thirty thousand behind, which is basically one round now at the NFR, isn't it? They're like yeah, twenty-seven thousand around. You can you can catch up in one round. So yeah, in the bull riding, he's got a hundred and ten thousand dollar lead, which is unbelievable. Uh, but often you see Jordan Hansen now it is. Made his third NFR. Jared Carson is right behind him in 12th. Uh, his second NFR. And Jared didn't um, win any money last year at the final. So, I mean, 
It can only go up from here for Jared at the NFR this year. He's only yeah, gonna. Those two are only... riding good, man. I, I think that yeah. I think that they go in there with some confidence. He can ride some bulls. So. And I think Zeke, uh, with the way things are going, like Zeke's a force to reckon with at the finals, and I expect him to do well, and you know maybe maybe set himself apart at the top of Canadian bronc riding supremacy. He's already pretty much at the top, but. Could be an un- unprecedented fourth four, fourth gold buckle, which would put him at the top of any Canadian athlete ever to this point. So, well, pretty cool Zeke, for the doesn't, Zeke doesn't buck off horses, and that's been uh, been the key to his success. You watch guys get bucked off just one one rank horse in an eliminator pen, and it's game over. Like, you know, nothing against guys like Dawson Hay and stuff, but they they buck off sometimes when you least expect it, and. That, that's the difference between winning a gold buckle in Vegas and Zeke rides the rank ones and he, he rides all of them. And that's at the end of the day, that's been what's won him those gold buckles is just consistency and riding the tough ones. Hmm. It's true. Um, unofficial. Okay. Updated CPA standings updated from, from what, when were they updated last? Does it even say? I had a feeling that we Oh, it doesn't. So, so uh, we'll we'll know who made the CFR in three to five more business weeks, just in time for the CFR. Just was, in time uh, when the uh, when the C- when the CFR happens. There were some there were some exciting races. I wish that I was I was watching on the Cowboy Channel. I wish they would have highlighted a little more because there were some really tight races, like in the in the Bulldog and the Barrel race. And I know like Stacy Rizika jumped in last minute. I think in the team roping there was like two or three teams that got into the CFR out of out of Edmonton. Really? Uh, yeah, there were some really tight races there. Logan Hay got into the CFR out of Edmonton, so and it looks like that. it looks like Logan just edged out Quentin Taylor. So not only does Q Taylor not make the NFR, but doesn't make the CFR. That's no. kind of crazy. So between seventeenth in the world and not make either one, that's probably unusual. And I think I think Logan's ride. Um, Nicholas Patterson was leading it till. Logan was one of the final guys to ride in Edmonton and, and that ride bumped Nicholas to second. And that would have got Nicholas into the CFR too, if you would have won first. I oh, believe. really? No so way. Was, uh, Cause Nick ends up being 18th with like 12, seven. So uh, Logan makes it with 15, three, Oh, 15, three, 92 Quentin Taylor. Oh, this is a four. Uh, this isn't definitely how you, but up in standings. This is just where we're at right now, but yeah. So if you would if you to give them if you to give them first place monies, you would have would have had enough to jump in. So, oh man, it's pretty, pretty wild. And of course, there's uh there's a couple of guys in there I think that were well, didn't have rodeo. Another count, count. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which Sage Newman looks like number twelve. And thirteen. Looks like the only one. But Chase Chase Brooks, yeah, number thirteen. That's right. Um, how about this stat for you? Nick Tetz wins uh Pinoca for twenty four thousand. Would have made the CFR in eighth place, but doesn't have the rodeo count. <laughs> he had one. He's got one on there, Pinoca. He's got one, Pinoca, yeah, for 24 grand. Yeah. That's pretty good, uh, pretty good average. But how about Corey Robbins won 54,000 this year? Holy smokes. And that guy rode a lot of bulls. He was – for Coy. He was uh, lights out this year, and and uh, he certainly deserved that season leader. He came in swing, and he left, left on top as well. So won Edmonton, and nice finish to his year. So that means Jet Lambert and Ashton Sully make the CFR both for the first time, looks like. And maybe yeah, Ashton, Tyler Craig, would this be his first one too? Yeah. Ashton, Ashton won himself in last weekend. That Olds, I think he won Olds. Olds and 
and placed yeah. in Hannah. That, that's what got him in, got him past, uh, I think it was Lonnie Phillips to, to qualify. Yeah. So he did it on the yeah, second last it. weekend. Look at that. But I guess going back to your point of it, you wish that they would have uh, uh, talked more about it, but it doesn't help when you're a uh, random American announcer from who knows where is announcing at your final rodeo of the year. Really does good credit to uh, Canadian Pro Rodeo to have somebody that doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about at your last rodeo so they can really pay attention to the standings and tell you what's going on. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty tough to be a Canadian contract act and see the final rodeo of the year that, you know, will tell the stories of the CFR and, you know, the guy there that's telling the stories isn't isn't part of our rodeo season hardly at all. So that's tough to watch, but uh, that is what it is. And you just wish that uh, there's a lot of Canadian guys sitting at home watching the last rodeo of the year and, <laughs> and not able to be part of it. It's always tough, but there were some really cool stories. I just wish it would have been highlighted a little more and a little more, a little more talk about it because I feel it was very anticlimatical where in the PRCA, you know, the, the standings watch and the Governor's Cup and there was just so much hype and who's in and yeah. who's out. It, it was super exciting. I found myself watching that more on the cowboy channel than edmonton just for that reason so yeah so and then tell me uh okay we got a couple here so i was looking at the kenny mclean award as the all-around so it looks like uh uh jake gardner did not qualify for the all-around this year so the only one is kyle wanchuk brother of uh, nfr qualifier colby wanchuk so yeah. unless yeah he's won it right because i don't think I'm, I'm imagining jake didn't win any money in the bulldog and in edmonton i don't know for sure i wasn't paying attention but no, he was, he was I actually tuned in the night that he was up for the Bulldogs. I wanted to see his run and he was, he was yeah. long. He, he struggled. I think he, if I remember correctly, like a 15 second run. I, I might be wrong, but okay, uh, did not. So, so I remember right after his run, I, I think I texted Sean and said, I think that means that Kyle wins a Canadian all around. So. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah. It's too bad that it's kind of like, uh, well, sorry, not all around the Kenny McLean award, which is the former yeah. all around, which for those that don't know, the uh, uh, formerly in Canadian Pro Rodeo, the all-around used to be somebody that competed in both ends. For those in the American Rodeo side of things, that's like formerly, well, I guess it's still the Linderman Award. you got to compete at both ends. Uh, where the all-around now in Canada matches the American all-around standings, where it's just going to be two events. So yeah. I, I think it's good that the change was made to match the U.S. one, but I still think all-around should kind of technically be, be both ends. But then when you think about it for like a guy like Stetson Wright to be like one end, you shouldn't have to be a team roper to win the all around either, I guess. So, I yeah. guess it's so, either way. Yeah, events, I think it's I think it's a good move and it works. And it's just been getting used to talking about it and what it means. I remember last year talking about it on the mic and people are like, "What are you talking about? Is it the all around? What's what's all around?" <laughs> we're, we're so used to high point. And... Yeah, true. Yeah, so it used to be for us the high point was uh, two events, so it's kind of backwards. But, anyways, um, yeah, so. Both seasons finished up. Uh, official standings will be on the way. Canadian finals is uh, going to be, what are the dates on that again? November 2nd to, oh, wait, that's last year. First, first to what fifth. What this year? First to fifth? Okay, good. I guess I need to look at the right schedule. Anyways, the first to the fifth of November, um, the, the uh, Canadian finals rodeo in Red Deer. Uh, and then what else? The NFR is like the middle of December. 7th to the 16th, I think, or something. Maple Leaf Circuit Finals still coming. Yeah. Yeah. And then, oh, okay. So speaking of CFR, um, 
I mentioned a few things last week, and we thought there was some news coming, but uh, it doesn't end up happening. So the CFR does not have a – I guess technically doesn't have a home in 2024 at this point. Um, but but I'm wondering I'm wondering more about that, what's going to happen. So it's going to be interesting to hear the news come down on that in the next little while. It sounded like, like there was something, but maybe there's not now. So um, I don't know. I don't know what the status of that is, but I guess we'll uh, stay tuned and give you an update when we know more. But uh, – uh, but Dustin, we gotta get to the point of the show this week. So yeah. uh, I've been on the road, and I guess we'll get to the uh, Edmonton piece uh, in the second half. We'll save that for the second half. But um, I left home like last week on Tuesday morning, and been doing some sales stuff, did some curling before I left. Uh, hadn't curled it since last fall or last spring, I guess. But anyways, uh, I'm in Drayton Valley now. Did my run up north at our PBR show in Grand Prairie, another one Edmonton. Uh, but but now I'm in Drayton Valley. Got a couple more stops around here the rest of this week. And then Thursday, we're having a party for my dad. It's his 80th birthday. So there's a lot of fun stuff. I guess we'll probably talk about more of it on the second half of the show. But but uh, my dad was born in 1943. So this year's 2023. Um, I'm the fifth of six of his kids. Uh, my younger brother's two and a half years younger than I am. So dad had JD when he was like almost 50. Uh kind of wild so it feels like sometimes like here i'm wearing my white t-shirt feel like some of the things in my life was it skipped a bit of a generation on some of that stuff but uh but <laughs> you did a little bit of research i was driving the day and i was like dustin did you do a little bit of a a little bit of uh um research on the different changes my dad would have seen in his lifetime now so you got a couple well more. well it was interesting because yeah, I, just before we get going on that the show this week though my brother and I recorded a, uh, like three different segments with dad in the summer of 2020. We were at home and we had a t- time and we always thought about, we need to like record some stories of dads because dad's got some wild ass stories. So he used to rodeo. Um, did I, Dad did all three rough stock events. He never, um, I don't think he ended up doing a lot of roping or not. It wasn't really a topic we talked about a ton, but he grew up in the ran- ranch in Southeast Saskatchewan in the areas of Carnduff and Carryville back in uh, like the early 40s. Uh, or yeah, born in 1943 during the war, which is wild to think about at this point. But, um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of fun stories. Dustin, I know you'll catch up with them here at some point too. But we're thinking about what to do for the show, and I was like, you know what, let's honor Dad and and talk about that. But you did do some some homework today on on all this. It's, I bet it's really neat, really probably kind of baffling. <laughs> well, it was funny because after you said what year he was born, I said okay, so he's 80, turning 80. I was like. I wanted to kind of split it in half and say, so he would have turned 40 in 1983. So my question is, is was life in 83 when he was 40 more similar to when he was born in 1943 or to 2023 now? Oh, geez. I wonder. And so I looked at it. So I, I looked up some things from 1983 when he was 40. IBM was just launching some a computer. Um, Michael Jackson was a star. Color television was becoming prominent. Like everything was in the newspaper. Everyone was writing letters. Where in 2023, we've got electric cars, smartphones, Instagram, Netflix. So that's one 40 year difference. But if you go back to when your dad was born, 1943, World War II is still on. They did have newspaper. They did have radio. Ford was the most popular vehicle back then. And 
But look at this. This is the stat that I thought was really cool. The average cost of a house, the year your dad was born in 1943 during World War II, was 3600 bucks. What? You could buy a house for $3,600? $3,600. Okay, what's, what's that inflated value today, though? Well, if you look in, if you looked at in 1983, uh, a house cost was eighty-two thousand. So but it the jumped. Interest rates were twenty percent. Yeah, so it jumped. It jumped like seventy-five thousand dollars in forty years, and now, and now it would it have jumped like four hundred thousand dollars in forty years. Dang. Uh, so I just thought that was like really cool. So. The interest rates in 83 was 11%. Dang. If you were, uh, if you were into that kind of stuff, but the average, the average wage per year when your dad was born was $2,000 a year. Monthly yeah. rent, monthly rent for a house was $40 a month. And you could buy a new car for 900 bucks. No way. Which is totally insane. And then when your dad was, when your dad was 40 years old, Monthly rent went from forty bucks to three thirty-five, and which is still crazy to me. And you could buy a Dodge Ram truck for fifty-six hundred bucks. Really? And yeah. now, now you now to get into a new Dodge Ram truck, you're seventy, sixty to seventy thousand for plain Jane, and you can get one for over a hundred thousand. So, yeah, a, a, a vehicle now. So your dad has seen a. Your dad has seen a five thousand to ninety-five thousand dollars swing in his lifespan in the price of a new vehicle. Yeah, dang. One of the questions I we didn't—I don't think we asked Dad. Like, I'm not remembering everything we totally got to at this point. But like, I wonder what he wished he would have done <laughs> that he maybe didn't. Like, like if I would have known Microsoft or IBM would have been worth billions, I wish I would have sunk. You know. 20 grand and that back in the day like could you imagine the stuff that guy missed out on that you might might have wished that you could do differently like i wonder i wonder on some of that stuff sometimes 100% like the year your dad turned 40 was when super mario got or like mario brothers came out <laughs> like to me that's like something significant happening like 5 years still away from my life like when your dad was 40 the first mobile phone from motorola was released really and and now we've got eight-year-old kids on smartphones. Like, yeah. I think that, I think your dad in that era, they have seen the most changes in human you know, existence. In human existence. Like, your dad saw a man land on the moon. He was born during a World War II. Like, when I think of yeah. World War II, I'm like, that's old-timey days. Like, Great Depression. Like, yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's just so insane that the, what they've, what they've seen and what your dad has seen. And like, that's, it's crazy to think of all those things that have changed in those, in those years that they've had to adapt to and grow with and learn. And, and to us, we haven't really seen those significant changes because for the most part, we've always had a computer. We've always had email. We've always had cell phones, you know, like us to a lesser extent, cause I didn't have a cell phone until I was in grade 12, but yeah, but you were like 17, 18. Yeah, the technology still existed, but I mean, your dad sent letters and yeah. So it's just it's just amazing to see that he's lived through all these significant events and advances in technology and it's just crazy to me. Like 
again, he could have rented a house and he was 40. When I turn 40, I'll be renting a house. It's going to cost $4,000 a month. You can rent one for three <laughs> Jeez. Hmm. Interesting. So those, uh, so... are, those, are my, those are my stats I looked up. I, I was really wanting to compare like his 40 years on either side of it to see yeah, true. What, more, what, see what was more like the other, but. Yeah. Huh. I wonder, uh, um, well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. There's so many ways we can go with it, but I, I, we had these recordings and I didn't know what to do with them for the longest time, but then I thought it'd be perfect fitting to release them on his birthday. So kind of, uh, his birthday's on the fifth and the show's coming on the fourth. So, uh, so these, these are Stobie's stories. My brother JD and I, uh, I got to preface it Ted, with like, you know, if you're listening to the podcast right now and you're like, Oh, I got to listen to like Ted's, Ted interviewing his 80 year old father. Let me tell you that he's got some crazy ass stories. Like this would, <laughs> this would be like Gator's kid sitting down with him when he's 80. No, it's Gator sitting down with his kid when he's 80. Yeah. Yeah. That, sorry. Yeah, that's what I mean. And yeah. Like, that's what you and mean. Then, yeah. And then, be, and then recording and then like, Holy shit. And, uh, because back then you there was no platforms to know about these things. And all you have is not really someone to sit around and tell you the story from their point of view, which I think yeah. you're uh, with your dad is super cool. So everyone's going to enjoy the stories. They're going to enjoy, they're going to really enjoy it. I think it's, I think it's super cool. You have a platform to, to share it on too. So we, uh, we sat down, it was like the summer of 2020, the COVID summer. And we sat down on the front porch at dad's house with a couple of microphones and my brother and I were just asked him questions. And this was only like the first, I think, I don't know, probably the first 30, this was only the first 40 years. This didn't even talk about the next 40. This was like only the first little bit and some of the things that had happened. But there was like, he was, he dropped out of a couple of helicopters. One was in the jungle in Malaysia. Uh, they traded a DC cat for three elephants to clear brush with for a seismic, like right away line they were building in like Southeast, somewhere in Southeast Asia in Malaysia, Borneo or something. Uh, he survives a plane crash. And then save like rescues a lady out of a plane crash. Uh, another story I don't think he even got to was he met the I think he met Prince or King Charles. I don't know. I'm not down with all the royalty business, but what the he, winter jacket story? Yeah, the winter jacket story. Yeah, my brother told the other day where he like the the king has this icy reception and makes the newspapers. And it was my dad telling me he was a dipshit because he didn't have a fucking winter coat in the Arctic, which is all. It's a pretty fucking dopey move. But like met the king of the Commonwealth and called him a dipshit for not having the coat. So needless to say, dad was on the next plane home. It didn't last very long in that game. But anyways, I hope you guys enjoy the stories. Uh, thanks again, Dustin, for looking up the uh, the stats and joining along in this one. So enjoy, everybody. We'll uh, catch up with you after the after the show with that. Well, I went to California and I had me a band, and we played in all the bars in all the southern lands. We played all night and we drank for free, all of my boys and me. Twenty-four. 
So it's June and we're uh, up here in Drayton Valley Storm and Ellie and I made the trip up this way. We spent a couple days in in Drayton here and uh, met up with my brother James Stoven. This is your first first or second time on the show? Second time on the show. What was uh, what were we doing the last time? I forget now. I think we were talking about Brinson and the rodeo clown business. Oh, and you were there that day. I just happened to be passing through. Yep. Yeah. Huh. That was so second time. Yeah. Welcome back. Welcome back to cowboy shit. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about it before, Dad. You wanted to kind of start with uh, with ta- talking about your oil field career, and then I I said the first story that I remember hearing about was when you were growing up in southeast Saskatchewan and in Carndiff and Carryville in that area there, and you got stuck in the in a snowstorm one day after after school was it or what was going on? Yeah, yeah, it was after school. I yeah, at that point in time in my life I was. Uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, and I was uh, doing the janitorial work as far as the furnace, keeping the heat on in the old one-room school. Had a furnace in the basement that burned mostly coal, but we had a a wood bin there too next to the coal bin, so if your fire got too low, you could put some wood on it and get her going good and then put the coal on and watch it a while and then set it up for the day and and the coal would keep it pretty much all day, and I didn't have to mess with the furnace again till I banked it up at night. And then it was time to go get my horse out of the school barn and uh, make sure he was ready to travel, tighten the cinches and such, and then head south to wherever the cowherd was and make a circle. And the deal was to go to the water hole first where they watered last and see if they were within calling distance, and you'd cut the water hole if you could close enough for you to see them and then I'd be toting a couple bags a couple tote sacks you know like gunny sacks uh, burlap bags uh, tied together uh, and more or less equally weighed on each side of the horse so that I could uh, put some bait out around the water hole and when the cows come up to drink they'd get a lick on the, on the salt and uh, whatever other supplements we'd put out for them just a teaser every day and that kept them coming and if they were within eyesight you could uh, make a little circle of horseback and holler and they'd come for water and and get a taste of salt or whatever supplements were given them always had salt and whatever else to kind of balance the weight so went good on the horse once they were coming to water then i'd make a circle around them and I was supposed to be eyeballing the herd to make sure that everyone was upright and and whatever bulls was still with them, uh, they were all present and accounted for and there hadn't been any anyone's missing and I hadn't seen on my trip so far any dead ones that might have got shot. Some folks were poaching. They couldn't hit a deer, but they could hit a, hit a cow, so they had meat stuff like that. Sometimes they were shot, but they didn't take any meat away from them. They were more like trophy hunters, I guess. Okay. But then, and just to tell people where we're at here, you were born in 1943, so this was... Yeah. The early 1950s would have been when this was happening. Yeah, I would have been 10 in 53. It was somewhere uh, there or thereabouts. I went, one night I left school late enough but at that time of year it was getting dark this was probably mid-december and that time i got lost in a snowstorm 
I, it was setting up to snow before I left the school, and it was quite a way south before I got to the cows. They were down pretty close to crossing over into North Dakota. And uh, by the time I had the water hole cut and got the cows coming to water and salt and such was sort out, then it was starting to snow pretty good. By the time I made my circle and, and my deliberations were complete, it was uh, the wind got up and the snow was getting thicker and it's getting darker and it's pretty much dark by that time and pretty soon I couldn't even see the horse's ears. So uh, I, I knew uh, generally before when the wind got up it was on my left cheek so I figured the wind was still in the west-northwest. All I had to do was ride north, I'd be home, keeping the wind on my left cheek. But unbeknownst to me, but uh, the wind changed while we were traveling, and pretty soon my horse started to get balky. He didn't want to go where I wanted him to go, and, and to keep the wind on my left cheek. Eventually, uh, I remembered my dad's instructions to, if you can't see and you can't, you think you're lost, uh, let the horse have his head. He'll either bring you home or he'll take you to shelter. So we went for quite a while, and the snow was getting deeper, and it's blowing into long drifts and such, but we ended up, uh horse stopped. We were at a kind of a poplar bluff around a, a fairly deep slough area where there was uh, wolf willow and stuff on the outside and, and poplar trees, and there was red willow on the inside. So that was a shelter out of the wind, and we went around to the east side and found a way in. And and then uh, before I got off the horse and out, we made a track around the inside circle of the red willow. And then we parked up again the high, high snowbank that was coming in from the northwest. And uh, that's where we spent the night. I was asleep there. But before I'd sit down to sleep, we'd take us walk around that circle path we made. The snow was getting deeper, but we'd started the path early, so we had a pretty good, pretty good trail around in there. And then when I got tired of that, well, I'd, I'd sit down and tie the, tie the reins around my right wrist, and then I could sit back again in that big snowbank and hunker down and, and have a snooze. When the horse got antsy, he'd get moving around because he was getting chilly. He's got to move, so he'd twitch a couple of times and he'd wake me up, so then we'd make that circle again three or four times, go around that circle inside there one one way and then turn around and go back the other way. Put in the night like that, and the next day it was still still the same. And the next night, the next day, and the next night. By the time the wind quit blowing there, we'd had... Uh, I guess it was about 10 o'clock at night. And uh, because there was so very few trees in that country, uh, that particular bluff was way southeast of our place, damn near to Manitoba. And uh, when the wind quit blowing and the stars came out, you could see your way to go home. So we started out of there. I had to gather up the saddle and the saddle blanket because I'd, I was using the saddle blanket for for uh, cover and uh, and uh, against the weather and 
I gathered up the saddle blanket and got the saddle back up where I'd hung it in a tree and saddled up again and then we headed out. But getting out of there was snow was a lot deeper than when we come in. And then trying to go home, we had to head a little, quite a bit northwest to get home. And uh, I got an eyeball on the North Star, that sort of thing. And following, uh, you could see the North Star and the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. So you just headed home uh, by the stars. But you'd run into a big snowdrift that I was scared to try and go over. Some of them were hard enough you could have walked over them with a cat and hardly made a mark in them. And other ones were kind of soft, and I figured if I got in one of them 10 or 12-foot drifts and the horse fell through, we'd be in a, a bigger bind, so we'd go around the low end and then uh, line up and and head the right direction to go home again. I got home pretty late. Well, it was good to see home, and Dad was sitting up reading. He had a, had a light on. Uh, he had old coal oil lantern or lamp, one of them parlor lamp sort of things on the kitchen table and he was reading a, a book or something there, probably a Louis L'Amour story or a Zane Grey and I come to the door and and uh, got in the side, the main door into the kitchen and he said, uh, looked up and he said, oh, there you are. He said, you better uh, put your horse away and take care of him and uh, you guys are okay, yeah, well, put your horse away and and don't give him too much oats or anything, just uh, make sure you dry him off a little, and he'll be inside, he'll be pretty tickled, and you better come back, and I'll rustle up some grub, he said, I reckon you're probably getting a little gant by now. You said when you're done with your horse, you better hustle in here and go talk to your mother, she's been some worried about you. And that was the uh, culmination of that particular trip. And the next day, the next day I got up and went to school and got the fire on and my two older brothers had had to look after it while I was gone. Uh, most folks that were uh, in, uh, had been notified that I was missing probably figured I was a goner, but I never did feel like I was in a lot of danger once I got in that bluff with that horse while well, we had her made, we're out of the wind and uh, the only one of the lessons I learned was there that you when winter hits that part of the world, you better put on your long johns. Don't wait till you get caught out for a three or four day blizzard. It can get pretty chilly. Well, and since that, you kind of really haven't taken the long johns off, really. It's kind of been like no. a scarring moment almost. You Not never at really all. Took no, off. it's stuck in my mind. And it's a nice warm day today, and I got the woolen ones on, the cotton ones. I had cotton ones on a couple of days ago, but I had to get scrubbed up a bit for a friend's birthday party. and put on some fresh ones, so I got that on. But I wore the the woolen long johns from Stanfields over in the desert when I was working in the Middle East. Never took them off. And you know the trick being that sort of like that water bag that I used to carry on the, on the windboard on the back and the side of the binder table, that water uh, would cool by evaporation. And... Uh, I learned pretty quick in the desert that that ungodly heat terror, the only way you could survive it was to have enough layers on that you could perspire and make it stay in your clothing longer, the easier it was on you. The people that 
didn't wear any, enough clothes and they, they'd uh, run out of water too quick and there was no water to drink, so you were kind of stuck. Conversely to that, like being in the blizzard, you never was never had a notion of dehydrating because there was lots of fresh, pure white snow to lick on. I got did get awful hungry. I was thinking seriously about taking a chunk out of that fat old pony and cooking it on my fire. But I wasn't freezing to death. We had a, got a fire going in there, and there was lots of you know dead wood to keep it going. And that, but I'd already eat my leftover lunch that I always took for that trip. I'd make my lunch in the morning uh, before I went to school and we had the cows milked already and the chores done and by golly uh, I'd always figured I'd leave leave a half a sandwich to eat on my trip to circle the cows and come back. Of course I had that eat by the time I'd made my circle and uh, from then on the next three days and nights were yeah, I was getting kind of hungry, yeah. How much time that was over? Um, one one thing JD mentioned off the top was that you had uh, been it's been through three different plane wrecks in, in your lifetime already. But, but, but those, well, in those, the past, yeah. Those happened via working in the in the oil business. And the first time you went off to work in the rigs, you're only 15 years old. Let's just let's start there and yeah. let you go from there. Yeah, I wasn't 15 yet. I was 14 when I first went over to this drilling outfit. They were drilling fairly close to home there, and I went over and asked the tool pusher. I'd had a look already, and it looked to me like I was short-handed. so when I saw him, I said, yeah, you wouldn't be short-handed." He said, yes. I said, well, I'd, uh, I'd like to go to work for you. And he said, can you be back here for four o'clock? And I was on afternoon shift. I was a roughneck for two whole days. Then I was a motorman for about two years. Then I was a derrick hand for about six or eight months. And then I was a driller. I was the youngest driller on that rig. And I didn't get much time in. And uh, I was pushing tools when the old guy went on his summer holidays. Being, uh, I said, that that big tough one. The other two guys got to seniority, and he said, yes, that's true, but uh, Jappy John, our one driller there, couldn't read nor write, and the other guy was a big fellow of German descent who would not deal with the public, so he said, you're it. I'm gone for two weeks. Uh, good luck. Here's your pliers, and you know where the haywire is, and we've got lots of PVC tape to mend the electrical problems, and you're on your own. And that was you, you know were, what to do. You were eighteen then, or 19? I was eighteen by then, and didn't or, really do much, finish much of your school, or did that in the spare time, or oh no, I went do? to school all the time. I graduated high school while I was working on a rig. That was a neat trick, but uh, I don't know if I'd advise a lot of people to go the same route. But I ended up going to Oxbow High School, which was the big school in the in the top end of the uh, larger school unit, and they'd build a new school. And uh, I lived in a dormitory there till I got booted out for being in the wrong place at the wrong, t- wrong time. There was a girl involved, but that wasn't uh, too bad. I went and got a, a room and board with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Scott. 
This guy was, uh, he was Bill Scott and she was Florence, Florence Scott. And I had an upstairs room there and there was another student there that was in another room upstairs there. But I had the warm room because the chimney came through my room. And sometimes it wasn't warm enough because we had a, we had a little basin with water in it. You'd fill up, take up to have a rinse at night before you laid down. And cold, cold winter mornings, that water would be froze in the morning when you got up. So it was a little different than what we're used to now. But I worked, uh, I went to work on that drilling rig for a tool pusher called Paul Cokey. Uh, he was from a piece of prairie out west of Estevan. And uh, one time we drilled a well down there that was right close to where he'd, he said that's just over there is where I went broke farming. He said, good thing we got this drilling to do and we're going to survive quite nicely. But I went on from uh, from that outfit because my memory's not so good, I'd have to ask somebody like Bill Adair or one of those boys that I worked with at Higher Tower to tell me what was the name of that outfit I first started with. And they eventually were sold out and absorbed to another company, and they became uh, Argus Drilling later on. When did you start traveling when you were working on the rigs? Well, we followed the rigs around in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and southern Alberta, we kind of would always have a camper trailer or you'd go get room and board or something like that. But I didn't start traveling big time. I guess you'd say we were traveling when we flew up to the Arctic. Uh, flew up to the high Arctic. They were looking for people to go work up there, and not too many folks were too anxious to be there. But I thought I'd have to try that. It couldn't be that much worse than a regular winter getting lost in a snowstorm in Saskatchewan. So I went to the high Arctic and we flew up there in these old Electras. Uh, some of them were pretty, pretty tough going. And the one crash that we had up there, I should have, had I been in the proper rotation, I would have been in it. But I'd been uh, shortchanged on my relief a couple of times and got out of sync. And I was at the rig when the plane crashed out south of Ray, Ray Point. And we lost everybody there but a couple of the crew members. I think the one pilot survived and, uh, and the loadmaster. But uh, my relief that was supposed to be on that plane coming in to relieve me, he wasn't there either, so I still did. After that plane crash there, I did time after till another two or three weeks before I got somebody came in and let me go home for a while. Can you tell us about your polar bear troubles in the Arctic? Well, yeah, in the high Arctic there, we had bear monitors, some genuine Eskimo folks that lived there with us, and they would have a couple of dogs staked out on the lease, and... Uh, them dogs would start to bark and growl and raise hell when there was a polar bear in the, in the area. And then a bear monitor was supposed to get up and go chase him away. And the one time we had, uh, I had a guy go missing. One of my crew went, 
went missing. He was a a motorman that I had that uh, we come in off the night shift and uh, I didn't see him at breakfast so I asked and one of the boys said, well, I saw him just duck out the door there and he looked like he was going walking for a ways because he had, had his park on and he had all his gear with and quite a bit of stuff and he was carrying a little gunny sack and then I found out in the kitchen that this guy had loaded up some peanut butter and a loaf of bread and, and a little slab of meat and then he took off and I had to go look for him and uh, by this time we had helicopters around there we got a helicopter up from uh, Ray Point to come in and uh, help look for him as it's 24-hour darkness and I had a flashlight and uh, and a radio a two-way radio so I could talk to the choppers and uh, I could talk back to my rig camp and the drone rig. And I went, I found his tracks and I'd go for ways and I'd lose them. And and then I got, when I finally got up to him, it took a couple hours. I found out where he'd powered out and decided to have a nap. And he was, he was uh, crouched in a, against a pressure ridge. On, on my side, the pressure ridge, and I was flashing the light around, and there was a polar bear kind of creeping up on him. And the chopper was pretty close by. Not uh, He was making circles with a searchlight, but he didn't see him, and I said, I'm over here. Uh, I'll wiggle my flashlight. You better come in a hurry because they got a polar bear going gonna to beat, beat us to it if we don't get that guy out of here. And they, they found me and found him and uh, loaded up my man who was pretty chilly by this time and took off to take him to camp and saw him out and left me out there with the bear. But I retreated uh, carefully and went back to camp, found my way back to camp without getting eaten there. We lost a guy on an imperial rig down in the, in the western Arctic. Later on, I had a... We had a well we were doing for Imperial Oil, and they had a they had a guy that was due to go out on days off that day. The plane was coming such and such time, and the, the tool pusher or the island foreman, he was on one of those man-made islands. They had him lined up, and he was waiting, and uh, they put him to work chopping ice off the entrance going into the camp to their mudroom area there and uh, had his back turned there chipping away at that ice and a, a polar bear come up behind him and give him a slap and took his head off it was way yonder they uh, made uh, somebody noticed and they called the alarm and then the guys come from the rig with the loader and chased the bear off but uh, by the time the, the bear was dragging what was left of that guy's body and time they got the bear separated from the body and they gathered up the pieces there was just enough to put in a pretty much fill a shoebox and we had to ship that south for his people to deal with they're pretty deadly them polar bears they're used to eating eskimos that are done have done their time and decide it's it's time to go so they'll walk out on the ice and and uh, sometimes they'd They'd freeze to death before the bears got them, and sometimes not. But they didn't have any funeral expense, for sure.
What about the time when the one was chasing you up and down the the was it the kitchen or, or well that was down that in the western arctic i remember that way too well i'd come in off night shift and there was a little bit of light just about noontime but i come off night shift and i had a, a small breakfast and my coffee and i went upstairs and went to bed we had a two-story camp all them shacks uh, stacked up on top of each other and uh, so we were like 20 feet off the ground up top there. And we had a fire escape door on the north end that would lead down to ground in amongst some uh, fuel tanks, reserve fuel and, and such like that that we had out there. And you could see over, uh, if you were on top of the rig, uh, on top of the camp, you could see over to, right in on top of the rig floor, over top of the prefabs. And the boys over there were working, picking up some tools out of the junk box at the time when this uh, occurred. Well, I had gone to sleep, and I, I was going to sleep my day away, and I woke up, had to go to the bathroom. And I figured I'd uh, go to the bathroom for a whiz. The bathroom's downstairs. Well, we got a fire escape door. I just went out to North End there, and kicked the door open and I was going to have a whiz there and then dog on it. The wind blew the door shut. And it's one of them one-way doors, like a freezer door, and uh, I couldn't get back in. So I decided I'd go down the stairs and creep around to the entrance into the mudroom entrance. And as I was going down the stairs, I was uh, looking around the ground and checking around the drifts around those fuel tanks and one of them snow drifts moved a bit. I thought maybe I'd come awake a little faster. I watched this move until it turned up to be a polar bear that stood up. I was up the stairs about, oh, I don't know, um, two-thirds of the way down. I wouldn't have been more than about six feet off the ground from where my feet were. And this snow drift stood up and looked me right in the eyes there and thought, oh my goodness, that's a tall bear. And I went back up them stairs pretty quick, and, and I don't even remember grabbing the edge of that that roof, but I was on the roof of that camp. And I went, figured I was safe on top of the roof. I looked back over the edge, and that bear was going crazy, running around in circles, trying to figure out how he's going to get me if I come down, and I thought I'd better go to the other end of camp. And I could get down on the stairs that came down off the second floor to get down to the back uh, kitchen entrance where the uh, kitchen connected up to the honey farm. And by the time I went over there to think about getting off the roof and down those stairs, Bear was over there waiting for me. So we did a dance back and forth quite a few times and I'm hollering at the top of my lungs and the rig's making noise. It's right close and uh, I couldn't get anybody's attention from the rig and uh, couldn't alert the bear monitor because he'd be sleeping too. It was coming up pretty near lunchtime. And I figured, well, I was going to freeze to death up here now. I just was in my long johns and not much else for clothing. And uh, I had some had my slippers on my feet, but she was getting pretty damn nippy out there. And uh, I got to do something. So I figured, well, I'll faint him out. I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll make a show like I'm going to 
take off and go go to the other end and uh, get him convinced. And when he takes off to run to the other end, old duck down this end, ended up that I was going to bail over the over the the far end of camp and get down between the honey farm and the kitchen door and get in that door because they they would open from the outside. I knew that door opened from the outside. So I had to do a quick feint and get that bear thinking I was right there and then run the other end and slip down, down the stairs and in the kitchen door. I got inside and got the door shut and I had a little window there. I could stand up tall and look out that little window and me and the bear were looking each other in the eyes again. That, that was uh, way too close for comfort. And I, I forgot, you know, I don't think I ever did get to go have a whiz there. I was pretty <laughs> shook for a while. It was one of those ones that happened automatically, probably. There was no control on it. I don't remember my pants icing up, so maybe I got away with it. I'm not sure. <laughs> it was a, quite a trip, I'll tell you. The guys were, some of the, one of the island foremen came out of his office down the hall, and I come in there, and I was puffing pretty hard. I think it was, uh, I think it was probably quite a surprise to him when this took place because it was, uh, not, no, they knew that I was on night shift. I shouldn't be running around in my skivvies at this time of day. What the hell's going on? I said, well, you best alert the bear monitor or give me a gun because there's a bear there that had no notion to have me for lunch. And because I was not partial to that idea, I managed to get in here. And I told him how I'd uh, taken myself out on the landing there and then the door blew shut and I couldn't get back in. And when I was going to come downstairs, the bear put me back upstairs. So we had quite a dance for a while and I wasn't getting any warmer. I had to quit sooner or later. So uh, I got back inside and the bear was quite disappointed. Once we got the bear monitor up and going, him and his dogs uh, chased that bear quite a ways down before he... He dispatched the bear, and and that uh, particular Eskimo told me, yeah, that bear would have had you for lunch, but he said he's dead now, and I've been hunting polar bear all my life since I was old enough to hunt. That's the biggest polar bear I've ever seen. It turned out to be a record-breaking size of a polar bear. But to me, he was a monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Arctic... Tell us between the difference between the Western Arctic and the and the High Arctic. So you're talking like, are you talking Western is over north of uh, the Yukon? Yeah. And then the High Arctic is really far north. Yeah, the High Arctic takes you up into the islands, like uh, the uh, Melville Island, and uh, there's uh, there's some other islands there whose names uh, escape me at the moment, but you've uh, there's some islands up there that is just rock that's uh, quite uh, hilly, like uh, Elifringus and uh, Axel Heiberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, those islands, I saw them, but I didn't have be unfortunate enough to have to work there. I did quite a bit of work on Melville Island, and then we went out to a place called some other island name that escapes me at the moment, but it was uh, still within the Ray Point vicinity on Melville. We'd go back there. But the Western Arctic, we called out where we'd we'd travel to Inuvik and then fly out from there to the rig site. Or sometime we, we, and we did a lot of 
experimentation work in that Arctic work. There was a time when we were in the high Arctic, Heli Hansen came to us to uh, get us to try out some of their Arctic wear. And I still have my one Heli Hansen suit. When it gets gets cold enough, I'd put that on and you can't freeze up or not. That'll keep your your body, your body core temperature from getting away on you. And then uh, we also tried, did, experimented with uh, that special footwear, you know, the the uh, boots that they uh, were building to keep us from freezing our feet up in that country. And uh, there's where you got those uh, special boots that I have some at home, uh, a pair at home in the garage there now, but they had to build special ones with fiberglass hard toes because the steel hard toes would draw the frost and freeze your toes right, right now. But the, are we good for now? Yeah, I was talking about experimentation in the Arctic. In the Western Arctic, we tried those airboat things, you know, what hovercraft. And my uh, the one I laughed about the most, which was kind of a serious deal, was my friend Bill Adair. He thought that hovercraft was a wonderful thing until they went out one time. They took off across the water, and they got lost in the fog. It was pretty chilly out there, and they had quite a few people on that hovercraft. And there was ice chunks still floating around there that if they crashed them, run over them at high speed, they'd tear the skirt off the, make a big hole in the hovercraft, and then it wouldn't hover, it would settle, and instead of floating, it wanted to friggin' sink. So they had to be pretty careful traveling with those things, and Bill thought that was the most wonderful way to get around until the one time they got traveling in the ice and they did take and they made a little hole in the skirt so they realized it and then they slowed down and slowed down and then the fog moved in and they didn't couldn't see where they were going and they had to just stop sit there and they were out there on the water about a day and a half before the fog cleared and they sent out chopper I think and picked them up. There was a, a thing that sticks in my mind about the boys talking, uh, J.D., there you were on the water this morning on the North Saskatchewan River. Well, when we'd fly in the summertime up there when the water was open, we'd get in a chopper, we'd get in a hair, airplane, and they, they made us put on life jackets before we entered the, the flight vehicle. And I always thought, this is kind of silly. I didn't intend to go swimming. And I mentioned this to one of the loadmasters one time. We were going out in a chopper, and he said, uh, those uh, yellow life vests are not meant to to uh, help you survive. He said, uh, you know, I knew by this time that that water was so damn cold that you'd perish in about 20 minutes if you didn't get picked up out of the water. And uh, your body would... Uh, temperature would go down so fast because it's brutally cold and uh, the guy says to me well they're not really uh, going to help you survive at all he said that's uh, mostly you got that on it's easier to find the bodies and we can retrieve them and send them back to your kin I was not heartened all that much by that advice and knowledge but tra traveling on from there the Sorrell Company came and uh, 
they had a new invention with fiberglass hard-toed boots. That was a good thing. And uh, I wore them faithfully till I came out of the Arctic, and we wore them in Alberta and B.C. in the North Country in the wintertime. They're the best thing, one of the best things that was ever invented. I still have ones that don't have hard toes in, but they're Sorrel boots, and uh, they'll probably outlast me. I didn't put them on once, twice maybe this past winter when it was 40 below. So that was some of your time in the Arctic. But as yeah. uh, Ted and I grew up in Canada, it's in the long winters, it's pretty easy to believe most of those Arctic stories. But one of the craziest stories I remember as a kid was your time in the jungles oh. in Borneo. <laughs> Can you tell us a story when you got dropped off by the chopper? Yeah, the first time in, like... Uh, we came, they said they were taking me out to where my job site was. And we flew, it seemed like, hours in this big chopper. And I was alone with the crew, the chopper crew. And I had a big uh, old duffel bag, like an army duffel bag with my my work clothes and such in. And we flew and flew and we, got, we were flying over this bamboo and then water and then more bamboo and the odd teak sticking up and the object of the game was to cut i was going to be a labor foreman and in charge of a seismic uh exploration in the beginning we had to make cut lines through the through the bush to get the seismic crew on the ground and i was out there alone they flew over this place and the guy had the coordinates in the book in the chopper and then he said oh we're here pretty close here somewhere and he's hovering and then one of the crew spotted a yellow an orange tag stuck to a bamboo that was probably 40 feet high and they directed me to get on the, on the rope ladder over the side and go down the ground and they threw my duffel bag out and I went down on the rope ladder and uh I just had room to stand, and that's about it. And waved to them that I was on the ground, and they buggered off. And it was pretty noisy standing under that chopper, but there was, seemed like there was quite a bit of noise in the in the jungle there. And uh, pretty soon it got really quiet. And then you heard a great big cat cough. And uh, the plan was that the chopper would return to base and bring back some of my Malaysian crew that I had had dickered for on a deal when I decided I'd come to this impossible job. Uh, we were in the Singapore office, and the guy said, "Well, this is a job you won't like. You won't you won't like this job." And I said, "Well, it's on land. I'll like it." Well, they said it's jungle. It's not really on land. It's jungle. There's a lot of swamp, and it's a difficult place to work in and I said well you're just cutting seismic line can't be too bad but I said I wanted my Malaysian crew off that offshore job to come with because they were an easy bunch to get along with and I had learned a few words of their lingo and they had learned a few words of English and uh, they were good people to get along with and they were good workers so they said sure anything anything you want as long as you can get her done We'll send you that crew. So the next trip in with the chopper, they had six of my 
Malaysians and they dumped them out the same way off that rope ladder. And we all were issued a 36-inch machete, which I knew nothing about at that time except you didn't want to step on it or fall on it because it was sharp. And them guys uh, got busy. Those six guys uh, had sleeping quarters built for us inside of a couple hours. And we had a little more room to move around in the open space. And we'd already identified our our starting point, and we were going to go that direction because there was another orange tag on another bamboo further down there. And those guys would slither around between the bamboo, and they could search out those things. I couldn't see from where I was standing. And then we knew that we're going that way. And then we got to have a a different colored flag, like they used orange and yellow a lot. If it was orange on one side, it'd be yellow on the other side. So it would show up in amongst the greenery. That was the idea anyway. Sometimes we couldn't find them. They'd blew away or shook away or lightning hit them and burn them up and they were gone or whatnot, but... We got the general hang of it, so we got to cut that way. And uh, you had to find your yellow flag opposite the orange to realize how wide it had to be. And we'd get in there and we cut that all by hand and then windrowed it to the center. The object was to come back and burn it later on when it had a chance to dry out. In the summertime in that country, it don't dry out, it rains. It was big lucky to find that pile of windrow under the water once, it, if it ever quit raining. But it was warm rain. It wasn't like falling in the Arctic Ocean and freezing to death. It was warm rain like you were standing in a warm shower with your clothes on. And for whatever reason, the amount of moisture we had in that country, it was hot enough that my rheumatoid arthritis didn't cripple me at the time and I was able to function pretty good. But uh, during the course of events there, but we, had, uh, we made good time cutting in there and then we got into more swampy kind of land and they they brought us a d8 cat and that just created a lot of problems because once we got it in where we were working and we got in that swamp country well it's like muskeg back here in in alberta you wander into that with a cat and it just sinks out of sight so we would uh, go about 40 feet 50 feet 100 feet with that cat and then it would sink and we had to stop the tracks right away, and it would just ooze and settle down. And then we'd be three or four days hauling brush to it to put under the tracks to get enough traction to get back up out of the hole. We didn't have a winch on it, so we couldn't tie it on with anything and winch it out. Nothing big enough to do that with, though, no. with anyways. Well, the odd teak we had in there, you could pull a lot on them. But after a few weeks frustrated with that cat and whatnot, I was on days off back in the Singapore office. And the guys said, well, how's it going? I said, well, we're doing better without the cat. Oh, how come? Like as if they didn't know that something that heavy will sink in the swamp. I thought that was pretty basic, but they seemed to find it hard to fathom. So you got that sorted out. But you actually ended up in, in Borneo because you, yeah. you didn't want to uh, work offshore either. That's right. Yeah, I was offshore and I was always seasick. And I couldn't, uh, when I ate a meal, I didn't eat or sleep much because uh, if I ate, then I was throwing up every 20 minutes round the clock after that until it was all gone. And I was so weak from heaving that you didn't want to eat anymore because it was just going to start over again. 
I was losing weight and uh, I finally told them that they were going to have to send me home or send me to land because if I stayed on that offshore barge out there, I was going to get so thin I would one day, I'd be get, get so thin that one day I would disappear. And that would be the end of that. So they said, oh, we got a job for you and that'll take you back on land. And that's how I ended up in Indonesia. And that was after the Af- Arctic? After the, after the Arctic and after the offshore job. Uh, well, let's talk Borneo still, because there's a story about a snake. Oh, yeah. And quite a few snake stories. I never was fond of snakes. But how did you solve your D8 cat problem? Well, the cat problem was a real pain, but uh, of course in that office there, these guys were pretty good at pushing pencils and making lines on paper and whatnot, but they really didn't seem to fathom what we were up against out there. So so they said, well, if you're so damn smart, how will you fix that? And I said, well, I'd been in India looking around, watching those big Indian tuskers work, (laughs) and I said, they can pile that brush better than we can with a cat, and they'll also be able to handle those teak trees that we can't cut with a with a machete, and sometimes they get in the way. So that was that, and about three weeks later, I got delivery of three great monstrous uh, Indian elephants along with the elephant drivers that we call mahouts, and there's a whole lot of story in itself. Those Elephant drivers uh, and their elephants are are pairs, and they don't ever separate. The the Indian mahout that's got that elephant, they're raised with them from the time they're children and trained to be an elephant handler and driver and care for the elephant, and the elephant takes good care of them. You wouldn't want to go over there and backhand one of them elephant drivers that are likely to have a a real pissed-off elephant coming after you, and there's no place to go. They can go through the jungle pretty quick if they're in a hurry. But, boy, they'd work away and work away, and uh, they could... We just... Then we didn't have to carry any of that brush to center for our main windrow. We'd, we just cut it, and the elephants raked her up and put her in this pile, and those guys driving them elephants would put any cat skinner to shame that I've seen. And I've seen some good ones, but those elephants and those elephant drivers really did us a good job. And uh, there's no getting them stuck. They'd, uh, they'd go around the swamp and clear the clear the brush and uh, that we cut and pile it up. And if one of them got in trouble, they'd shriek. And another one, uh, elephant just automatically went to help. Like if they, we come up again, a big teak tree that was too big to hug. I couldn't get my arms around it and touch my fingers on either side that they'd just aim one of them elephants at it and he'd wrap his trunk around there and rear back and if he couldn't pull it out of the ground by the roots, he'd shriek and another elephant would come help him and the two of them together would rip it out. We never did come across a teak that we couldn't yank out with them elephants. And then when they got it out there proud, they'd, they'd carry it together over in the windrow and dump it and then snort a little bit to say, there, you know, we did that okay. What do you think of that? I was always amazed at what the guys could do with those elephants. They were intelligent animals, and those guys that were driving them, they took such good care of them elephants. Those elephants would do anything they asked them to do. And I'm not sure how they communicated with them. They had a little little stick like a, 
not as big as a walking stick, but more like just a, about a four-foot chunk of bamboo, and they were always tapping that elephant on the shoulder or up his neck, or sometimes if they were goofing off, he'd rattle him around the ears, and the elephant would reach back, and he'd look for a water hole and get a snort full of, snoot full of water, and then just blow that elephant driver off his back just to show him who's boss. There were some wonderful things. When we got into fresh water, it was a given that um, elephant drivers took them elephants to fresh water and they'd be playing in the water for an hour at least and they would wash one another and the drivers and the elephants and they would be scrubbing the sides of them elephants and they got out some stuff they made soap out of and lathered them all up and then scooped water and pushed them off and the elephants would suck up a bunch of water and spray each other and and then the elephant drivers would all get in the water and they're going to get lathered up on some leaves that made like soap. And once them elephants seen they were all lathered up, they'd just give them a real shower. Right now they were all scrubbed clean. They came back to the line and uh, said, now, now you knew they were ready to go back to work. But we'd had so much entertainment watching them and such that usually by then we'd call a halt and we'd have some time out. We'd either lay around and eat and drink or raise hell just for the fun of it until we were felt like going back to work. That was one of the best jobs I think a man could ever have in the world. And uh, it took me about six, eight weeks to get the story on what happened to the American that was running this crew before. The head man that I had on the job who was looking after the the laboring crews, which was my Malaysians, uh, there was 36 or 37 of us in there counting the headman. Headman was on the crew that we replaced, and he came with. And I finally got the story from him on what happened to the guy I was replacing. He said they took him out of here on a on the chopper, uh, wearing one of them jackets where you hug yourself all day, which I deemed to be probably a straight jacket and uh, when we, I traced this back from the head office in Singapore back to the office in Santa Fe Springs they said that guy was a mental case when they got him home said them natives had scared him to death then I found out a little bit about that later on even with the Malaysians they were awfully good to me but they were pretty scary too those people got I don't know, out of that 30-odd guys I had there, they must have had four or five different kinds of religion, and uh, they had spears, and they had big masks and stuff. One time they scared the hell out of me. One night I was I was sleeping in my tent with my mosquito netting all around, and, and uh, I, w I woke up in the night for some reason, and I kind of rolled in the hammock to get a little more comfortable, and I'm looking right into this hideous mask. And then the eyes in that mask were looking right at me and then blinked. And I come awake in a hell of a hurry and I, I tore out of that mosquito netting and literally ripped that tent apart and I took off down the trail flat out. And uh, I was about as far as I could run. I had to stop and I take a breath. And I looked back and around our night fire, those guys were all in a big circle. They're just laughing their guts out at that crazy Canadian that they woke up and chased him scared out of his bed 
And when I was deciding on how I was going to painfully kill every last one of them, on account of this uh, episode, I'm walking back towards the fire when I uh, I got my get my breath, and these these guys are reenacting this particular incident. They had another guy in my hammock, and a guy behind the mask to scare him, and he went went boo, and that guy jumped out of there and tore down the trail to where I was, and I thought about it, and I decided I wouldn't kill them all some unmerciful way that I would. I'd laugh too because it did look kind of funny from where I was standing then. And we went back and then we had a big party. Them guys had made some homemade hooch that actually went down pretty good and we sat around the fire and told lies and reenacted this scary uh, job for till morning and then we slept for a couple hours and eventually the head man came around and decided we should go to work. So we went back and started cutting on that line again. But when I'd go on days off, those Malaysians of mine, they came moved into Jakarta, and they built their home quarters in the jungle just north of the city of Jakarta. And when I was flying back to Singapore from Jakarta to go on days off, the men and the women and the kids, they all came out of their village out there and followed me to the airplane wailing and crying and hollering and uh, the stewardesses that I was flying with were pretty convinced I must be a missionary and that was all my followers that were coming to to uh, send me off on the trip. I had a hard time to convince them that I was not a missionary. <laughs> Probably some of my language had them convinced before that episode was over. That was one of the best jobs I've ever had in the long run in spite of some of the perils that were in that jungle. Like the snakes. And, yeah. And, and you got you to tell us the snake story. Well, the big, we had, there was a big snake. And I didn't see it, really. We are going to work in the morning. And I'm in the middle of this column of 30-odd, heading to where we were cutting last. And as the boys are walking ahead of me, I'm watching over their heads because they're all about a head shorter than me. And when it looked like they were stepping over a log because their head would go up and then the next guy, his head would go up. And when I got to step over that log, it was going sideways. That log was going yonder. And I realized it was a snake. And then I took off and run over all them guys in front of me pretty much. And we had a big laugh. So then every day after that, whenever those guys would find a little eight or ten inch snake hanging in a tree somewhere they grab it and then come around me and and swing it and holler this boss snake mr getty snake mr getty snake i was mr getty <laughs> from gary they got getty but they uh had their fun and i was safe uh, those people took good care of me really uh i finally got malaria over there and if it hadn't been for them i wouldn't be here today but they cared for me and my illness and uh, kept me uh, alive. And then we got out of the jungle when it was time to go. They got the, they got the uh, generator going and got contact. And the chopper come and picked us up. And I went to hospital for three or four days. And then I was out in Singapore, healed up a bit and came back to work. When I got back to Jakarta, that crew was all at the airport Wives and kids and pets and everybody was all there, and they had a 
a great party. I had to go back up to their village and stay overnight. They had food and drink and carry on there. It was pretty, pretty much of an event. Then we went back to the jungle and went back to work again, did the same stuff. It was good, healthy work, and we were certainly in the fresh air. We lived out there, and when the guys in uh, Singapore, they'd ask, you know, what do you what do you need for crew out there? My Malaysians wanted a 100-pound bag of rice, and I don't know what all else. Not much. They would... Uh, they had their own cook pots and whatnot, and they pretty much ate out of the jungle. They could pick up plant off there that we'd walk by two or three times, reach in there and grab something and put it in a bag and hand it off, and eventually it would get back to the cook fire. And Sometimes they would be they would be cooking up at uh, their end, and my night uh, fireman had a nice fire on for me, and I would... I would uh, fry up a can of spam or crack a couple eggs and have scrambled eggs and spam or that sort of thing because I had a frying pan and a good fire. and I, I ate pretty good over there, I thought. And, uh, one day, one night, we were having supper and them boys come to me with a plate that had something on it that looked almost like a Halibut steak. And I looked at that, and I, the guy said, you take, you take, you got to eat. So I ate that, and they came back, and I said, where'd you get that fish? Oh, no, boss, that's not fish. That was some kind of snake we just ate. <laughs> and I know it didn't taste that bad, but I didn't want any more of it. I, wanted, I cooked up, so I had a bunch of spam cooked, so then I, I gave them some spam to try, and boy, they got hooked on that spam. We uh, we went through a lot of spam in that time frame. Those next time around, I got double order spam, and we ate spam and eggs and stuff till uh, we try and get them convinced that I didn't want too much more snake to eat. And it's, it tasted okay. It was just the idea of it, I guess. Gets mind over matter, maybe. So from uh, from Borneo in the jungle, the next stop was you were back home for a while. Yeah, and then the next one would have been over in the in the Middle East, right? Yeah, I was supposed to go to Libya because they had big things going on there, and I went to the guest house uh, was in Malta. So I went from Malta over into Libya. And tried to get to the rig, and every time I went to go to the rig, I ran into a roadblock. They said I was an American. Get out. We don't want Americans. Uh, it was an American company. It was an American oil company drilling in, in Libya. And uh, at that point in time, Gaddafi was nationalizing the oil field in his name, and he didn't want anybody else getting in there and having anything to do with that. So... I tried to get to that rig, I don't know how many times, and I finally gave it up, and I got a, the company got me a visa to go to Kuwait. So I went up to Kuwait, and I drilled wells there that the production tests would boggle your mind. I've seen good wells in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Alberta and British Columbia and in Texas and uh, Louisiana. 
but I never seen anything like the production that come out of those wells in Kuwait. Then they decided they had a new find. They were going to go look at this reef that was down on the southern uh, end of Abu Dhabi and uh, just about three clicks north of the Saudi border. So I had to take that drilling rig out of Kuwait overland down to Abu Dhabi. That was quite a venture. But we finally got it there and we set up out in this desert, which was fine blow sand. They had uh, dunes there that were 800 feet high, six to 800 feet high, and you could drive right up to the tip of them. And if you were good at it, you could tip over the edge of that edge and then keep it in gear and just roll slowly uh, rotating your wheels and run all the way down the slip face all the way back to hard sand again. And it was uh, where you go around in this country riding your quad in the bush or on a bush trail over there that was fun to play with your Land Rover and go down the sand dunes. But some people didn't do so well. They'd get them upset and rolling downhill and there wasn't much left of the Land Rover after one of those. You had to go straight down. <clears throat> now you're in Abu Dhabi and uh, this is where you start getting into some trouble flying, it sounded like. Yeah, well, the one trip, we were on days off, and we were flying. I was uh, I was coming in to go to work, and we were flying. I'd been home on days off. I came back out and flew through England. We came out of England, uh, Heathrow, on an MEA flight, Middle East Airlines. It was a subsidiary of BOAC. And we're flying to uh, Abu Dhabi City. So we come from uh, London to Beirut. And from Beirut to uh, Abu Dhabi City International Airport. And we were just ready to land in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, but I didn't really know it. We had a, a Boeing uh, 707, I think it was. Pretty husky airplane. And something went bad there landing, and uh, that thing uh, touched down, and nose gear collapsed, and uh, the running gear on uh, on the uh, right-hand side of the plane. I was sitting on left, and we hit there and went crash, went into a big spin, and it left the runway because we came in on landing speed. They didn't say we were landing. I was, I'd had a couple sips there and I might have been uh, missed, the, missed the approach but I was tied up in my seatbelt and the next thing I come to we'd taken a hell of a ride around went off that runway and through a ditch and over another runway and making a great big circle turning turning uh, clockwise and I remember seeing a flash of light in front of the Dolby building that was the airport terminal I saw it once and then we went around again and this thing finally came to a halt but it was on fire then and it was filling up with smoke and crud and I come to I thought maybe you guys should get out of here and you're expecting a crash landing they should have that plastic slide set up with the air in it and you just step out the door and slide down but I was sitting in the back of the plane the uh, bulkhead behind me had had uh, 
gone out and it came forward over where I was and this stewardess who was just going to bring me a drink, she ended up head down across my lap with her head stuck in the, in the, underneath the seat beside me, ahead of me. And when it was time to get up out of there, I couldn't, I couldn't get up. Well, I got my seatbelt done, undone, and I, I still couldn't get up. Oh, she was, she probably outweighed me by ten or twenty pounds. But then I got a little more strength, and uh, I managed to get her uh, head out of that place where she was stuck underneath that seat there, and I carried her uh, out of out of there, and I was only three or four rows from the tail end and went out the back door, but there was no slide there, and I, I stepped out of there with her in my arms and went down, crashed down below to the ground level, and uh, how it happened was managed to land so that my elbows hit the pavement of, uh, of the strip that we were sitting there when it finally come to a halt, and, and her head went in the soft sand beside it, so didn't kill her getting her out of the plane and she was bleeding pretty bad but I picked her up and I'm going like in a trance you know I'm in shock whatnot and I walked her along and walked under the wing of that plane that was burning and the sand is deep there and I was heavily loaded I'm pick one step at a time it's a pretty hard job and then there was an explosion behind me that put us down put me on my face again and she was getting pretty uh, much, a lot of sand sticking to her, and I picked her up. Now I'm heading for the building, and it's not that far away, but it's pretty hard going, and people there are jumping up and down, and I could see them waving their arms and beckoning me towards them, but nobody came to help. I finally got there, and I, I laid her down, and the first time in my travels, our company man, who was our taxi, he was early that day at the airport, and we uh, had to do a little first aid on that girl because she was bleeding from pretty shallow wounds mostly, and I tore off my clean T-shirt that I'd put on before we started that flight and made the bandages or two and tied her up, and then we took her to the just opened hospital in Abu Dhabi City. They had a 12-bed hospital, and I got her admitted in there, and told him who I was and I didn't know her full name but that she worked for the airline and then so on and so forth she was still unconscious and I, they said that's all we could do at the moment they'd have to wait till she came around I went back the next day to see how she was doing and she was awake and very grateful that I'd carried her off that burning airplane I never did tell her how close it was to killing her from stepping out that door with her we could have just easy fell on the pavement and killed us both. It was quite a drop. How many yeah. people survived that wreck? Well, I'm not sure how many of us was in there. The plane was fairly full, but there was uh, people native to that country that had their goats and chickens with them and all that kind of stuff. But the within about four days, I got the word that there was 56 or 58 people perished in that crash and we went on from there it was pretty uh, pretty much of a tough goal
Well, you had to go to work later in the week, probably. Well, I went to work late okay. that day after I see she was okay at the hospital, and the company was trying to get me hustled back to the rig because the guy in there was due to come out on days off, so I was a day late already. And I got to the rig and went back at her, and uh, it was uh, a day or two later before I realized that my my left wrist was broken. And I had to carry it in a sling for some time. We had a medic at the rig and was pretty astute, and he felt that and said it's broken, and and I can wrap it. I, I can't cast it, but I can I can wrap it and then sling it, and it'll heal up on its own. So that was that. Another broken bone or two. After rodeoing for 30 years, I didn't really notice my, the odd one. I broke lots of ribs, and I broke both my collarbones, the one twice. Different things like that got broke, but I, uh, up to this day so far, I haven't broken an arm or a leg, which is some kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. I broke my right ankle and my left wrist. Hmm. I think my left wrist must have got jammed in that seat somehow when it hit first. I, I never noticed it for two or three days. But I ascertained uh, from the medic there at the rig, that's what it was. And so next time out on days off, I I saw an actual doctor who checked it. Said, it, I can't do anything for it. It's, it's already healing and just keep it in a sling for another week or two and you'll be fine. And so that one actually is pretty good nowadays. What... Uh where did you go from there? What was next? How how long were you there for? You went home. Out of uh, out of uh, well, we were now in Abu Dhabi, and I'd just come off days off. Right? And I was home for a month or so, and then we went back and got in that plane rack, and then I went back to work, and I had a year contract, so I was in Abu Dhabi for that year. But before the year was out, uh, we'd got production on that well, and we were production testing when. Uh, Saudis come over and tried to take it away on us and threatened us, you know, with dire circumstances if we pursued our drilling activity. They said uh, we'd already drilled, by the time that year was out, we'd already drilled the first well, which was a surprise to us because they expected it to be deeper. We had an awesome well at what was originally thought that where the fault was that we should be drilling around 20,000 feet to get to the production area and we we had a real uh, humdinger at 5,656 feet. We hardly got started drilling and we had a, had a runaway. We got that under control and uh, eventually got that wrestled down to where we could test it and that was a good well. And then we moved and drilled another one and we were on the third one when the Saudis come over and said that's it. We're taking this. It's ours now. You go away. And I stayed at the rig. Me and uh, three, four Arab rig hands, helpers, laborers. And we fed ourselves and hung out there till somebody else had come to stay with it. But they sent all the company men. Uh, we were drilling at that time for a company that was 52% owned by, by uh, Sheikh Zayed, who was the supreme leader in Abu Dhabi at the time and the rest of the people was a, a four-way split between uh, 
Imperial Oil, which was, uh, and Mobile Oil and Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, and a French company called French Petroleum Ace. There was some, um, what Sheikh Syed had to say on it when it come to the, to the, uh, territory and he said no we're keeping it we had the british uh air support to come and uh and look after the people in abu dhabi and uh and the uh air wing from the saudis was made up of all kinds of mercenaries from the states and australia and europe wherever they came from there was we would live through that time frame where they would come in and make a show. Uh, there was a, a fighter jet come in there with five missiles tied under each wing, and and they'd go make a show of flying in a circle tight around their outfit, and then and then turn a missile loose to blow up a big sand pile and make a make a show, and then they'd fly away. Sometimes you could get close. That plane would be close enough to you. You could tell through the window whether that guy had shaved that morning or not. It was pretty scary that way. I'd take Land Rover out in my hands and we'd go out to camp and, and go up in the sand dunes and hide out. We had, we'd uh, take a tarp with and throw it over the Land Rover and then throw sand on it and pretend we were hid. And uh, sometimes some guys fly pretty close to us, whether they saw us or not or whether, of course, they saw us. They wanted to show us that, how close they could get and, Scared the hell out of you. Sheikh Zayed asked me personally if I'd stay. I said, well, don't see why not. It'd be like camping out, you know. Well, and then and you got to be friends with him at one point. And tell, tell us about that. You went and Well, no, horse, not horse so much. Sheikh, right? Sheikh Zayed was pretty decent to me because he wanted somebody to stay there and show him that we weren't just going to scoot off and go home or anything. But it was when I was going on days off in uh, in Bahrain, I got friends with the Sheikh there, and he started that. I was coming out of the Sheikh's beach. Uh, I'd come out of the water with my cowboy hat on and my swim trunks and, and go find a place and sit down and pull my riding boots on and then take off from there. And the one time I was just coming out of the water and the Sheikh was, was at the beach and he had his tea set set up on a table and he'd sent one of his uh, aides over to talk to me and he said uh, Sheikh Isa bin Salman Al Khalifa wishes to have an audience with you please come with me so of course I went over there and uh, got introduced to the chief of the island of Bahrain which was also an oil rich place as well as a, a very busy seaport country that what handled uh, worldwide shipping. And they had a really good international airport and a pretty good outfit, really. They had onshore oil on their island and they had offshore oil in all of his water territory as well. Pretty well set. But he seen somebody that liked horses, so he wanted to know, you know, where I came from and what I did and so on, and it turned out that he gave me a a pass, like a piece of document and that to carry so that I would go to his palace stable. 
and I had entrance to see all his top-end horses. He had the best Arabs in the Middle East there at the time, which they would race occasionally on Sundays, and they would have horse races and camel races and whatnot. And uh, there wasn't anybody in the Emirates there that could beat him on horse races. And I got involved with him, and he took me one time to see his experimental farm because they'd figured out how to make their own fresh water uh, out of seawater. He had this little experimental farm where he was growing a bit of stuff. And I I got involved with him there to where whenever I came in on days off, I'd go out to his experimental farm and make suggestions as to what we could grow there. And we grew alfalfa, and I got him started growing corn and potatoes and turnips and anything that would grow in the ground there. They had fresh water, and they had all kinds of it, so we could grow anything we planted. And eventually I got a seed catalog, and we grew all kinds of different stuff here. We're growing peas and carrots, and and uh, he's never eaten a turnip before. He thought that was the darndest thing. Oh. Before I left uh, Abu Dhabi, when I was out in the Bahraini country, then he knew I was about to head back home for days off. He said he would like it if I would stay there and run his experimental farm. He'd keep me for life. But I said, golly, I've got family and... Uh, friends at home and I, I've got farmland and pasture and cows and I kind of got to go and look after that one day. And I saw him again when they came to West Edmonton Mall one time to the Fantasyland Hotel. He flew in with his own jet and his crew and his people and a whole bunch of his concubines and uh, we had a meeting at uh, Fantasyland Hotel. He, he, he had rented. Up, right? He had rented the whole darn place, uh, one uh, one floor, for his people. Yeah. But they looked you up when they came to Canada. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had to leave him my my name and address and phone number and whatnot, so we could get in touch when they came there. He was a great guy. That uh, Sheikh Isa bin Salman Al Khalifa was called the benevolent Sheikh at that time because he'd quit beheading folks that were needed beheading and he shot them instead. They'd have a public execution with a firing squad. And uh, that's why he got the title of the Benevolent Sheikh. Wow. Well, it's starting to rain here. We're sitting outside, so we better wrap it up and pause for now, but we'll we'll pick this back up here at some point. Sure enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, we don't want to get wet. It could cause harm to the electrical components here. Maybe, but yeah, thanks for doing this, Dad. We'll, we'll keep, uh, keep going here at some point. Like... I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive I was a sailor 
Okay, once again, I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, the stories with my dad, with my brother and I uh, visiting with him. That's only uh, it's only part of it. There's there's way more. So he could talk for days, and we'll. Uh, I think we're actually before even before the show goes up, my brother and I were actually talking. We're gonna probably record a bit more with him in the next couple of days while I'm here in Drayton, uh, spending some time. So get a few more for another uh, another rainy day. But uh, but the last so the last week on the road here, I really wanted to get to it. We uh, we bucked some bulls right in front of Roger's place um as a promotion for the pbr canada finals coming up november 17th and 18th at rogers there in edmonton pretty huge news going to pay a hundred thousand for the pbr canada champion this year so it's uh and that finals event with two hundred twenty-five thousand added is the richest western one of the richest western sports events in the country uh but the second highest paying pbr event in the, in the world so gonna be a pretty big uh Pretty big bonus here to the uh, to the Canadian champion, and Buck and Bulls in front of uh, Edmonton was pretty wild. But then we go to Grand Prairie, and uh, Dakota Butter wins the event, but breaks his collarbone, so now he's out. He goes to number one in the Canadian standings, passes Nick Tetz. Nick wasn't there because he was at, riding for the Arizona Ridge Riders and uh, at their home home event. Uh, so Butter goes to number one, but then breaks his collarbones, probably out to the finals if he can even come back for the finals. So kind of down a guy in the race there. Uh, what do you cover, Chuck? past Tets as well so he's number two um but yeah there's like three events to go we got uh medicine hat saskatoon and go right to the final so almost seems almost done i don't think from what i've seen i don't know if there's been anybody on either side riding as good as nick right now man he, so good leading off in that team series for arizona and he has been lights out so good i hope he's getting paid for it I, we didn't really ask him when he's on the show about like what what that was worth, but I hope I hope he's getting some decent pay on that kind of thing on, you know, on a guaranteed salary for being the in the, basically the team MVP, right? So that's actually one thing to mention too. Uh, Corey Robbins has done really well. I think he, well, one thing Alicia Erickson was talking to him about this week was he's won over a hundred thousand dollars in Canadian events this year. Uh, between pro rodeo, he won fifty six thousand there, and he won. I think he's won like almost. Uh, 40-some thousand PBR Canada style things. So, Coy's had a heck of a season uh, up here this year. What do I got? Coy, 43,000, yeah. So, he's won 100 grand. And, and, he, and he, won some, he won some money in PRCA, too. He got a little out of Calgary, I think. And he's placed a few PRCA rodeos, too, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, Let me just look. I wonder if he's – Jake Gardner is 45th with 46,001 on the year. Um, Coy should have. Oh, there he is. Coy's 34th, 57,000. So 3,000 in the PRCA and 54 or 56 in Canada. So didn't win much in the pro rodeo stuff south of the border, but but still went and gave it a go. 1300 bucks in the extreme bills. Yeah. I think the rest of it's all uh pro rodeo money in Canada, but anyways, right. had a heck of a season. Yeah. Big year 54. Good, yeah. Good, so. to see guys, good to see a guy like Coy be able to. You know, rodeo in Canada and ride bulls in Canada and and make a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. It's super cool. Yeah, and I think stuff like the promotion in Edmonton the other day is part of the reason why 
guys come in and make a bunch of money now, right? Like the the pro rodeo standings are 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 pretty solid. It drops off kind of in the fifteenth kind of spot past that, but uh, you know, PBR Canada is kind of kind of a little bit similar, but ton of money paid out though. You've got your top uh, twenty guys have all made about at least ten grand. Uh, the top guys, Butters one fifty thousand, Cover Truck forty five, Tets fifty, Koi forty three, Aaron Roy thirty eight thousand. So, um, yeah, great season by those guys all riding north at fifty percent all the way to the, all the top four guys <laughs> riding a lot of bulls. Um, and then uh, yeah, yeah, it's gonna be, gonna be it should fight right down to the end on both both titles. Looking forward to the to the fall run. I always enjoy this time of year. Kind of like what we talked about the last time, but yeah, it's it's crazy to think that one of those guys is gonna win a hundred thousand dollars, like big. In double, one shot, double one check. What, double what the Calgary Stampede big check is, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and we're just PBR Canada, we're not the Calgary Stampede making billions so of yeah. dollars. Exciting. Hopefully that money comes back one of these days. Um Dustin, what else we got this week? Is that it? Bedtime? Oh yeah, we got a got a fun uh, got a fun week ahead. Going uh, going back to drum to catch some dragons game with my buddy Chris Cook tomorrow. Uh, not Cook, future production. Like... Oh okay. Um, Chris is a buddy of mine. He's a motivational speaker. We're gonna try and get him on the show one of these days. Um, so we're gonna go back watch some hockey, and then uh, Thursday going down to Phoenix. Um, going to watch Ali's brothers home openers playing hockey down there at ASU. So we're excited to go watch a little hockey and uh, we're actually going to the ASU college football game on Saturday. They're playing coach prime Colorado. No college. way. Oh, yeah, really? so we're going to that game. see yeah. you. Oh man. That'll be ridiculous. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're excited for that. We're going to go tailgate Saturday and uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun little Thanksgiving weekend uh, down in Arizona. All right on. Uh, did you see the buckle Montana Silverstone made for Coach Prime the other day? No, I've checked yeah, that out. Buckle. We made him a buckle and they and they sent it to him. So kind of a cool little sidebar. But I know there's a lot of that's one of the bigger teams close by. Our uh, sales manager Jade Opfer uh, lives in Denver, so he's he went to the game the other day in Florida or something maybe I forget where it was, but he no Oregon. He went to the Oregon game. Yeah, they um, got, they got their asses kicked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, it's a super cool hot. story, and the, the minute we heard they were going to be there the same time as us is a no-brainer to go. So. Tickets. Yeah, I'm, I'm real. Okay, well, have an awesome weekend. Happy Thanksgiving, Dustin. Happy happy Canadian Thanksgiving to all of our American listeners, and hopefully uh, everybody enjoyed a bunch of dad stories this week. And, uh, yeah, have an awesome trip, Dustin. Talk to you when you get back. Thanks, pal.
in the palm of my 